Welcome to another Slate Spoiler Special Podcast. This week we are spoiling Thor, Love and Thunder, the fourth, am I right, Sam? Fourth freestanding Thor movie in the Marvel Cinematic Universe? That is correct. And I believe this is the first time a Marvel hero has gotten a fourth movie. Is that right as well? Yeah, it's, yeah, it's the fourth movie with the character's name in the title, I believe. They've obviously shown up in lots of other people's movies, but Thor is the first person to get four Thor movies. I mean, I think that is significant in a way, which we can get to later, which is, you know, can any hero, can any of the characters in this universe sustain that many solo movies about them and continue to be interesting and not repeat themselves? I think we somewhat differ on that because surprisingly for me in the MCU, I liked this movie more than you did, I believe. But wait, I haven't even introduced you yet. At the other end of the line with me this week is Sam Adams, senior editor at Slate. Hello, Sam. Hello, Dana. I was just thinking as we were getting ready to record about this funny exchange we had via email on the day I was writing. Writing my review when you sent me a list of questions that you plan to publish explainers about on Slate when this movie drops at the end of the week. And I thought you were asking me those questions and proceeded to exhaustively go down the list and answer all this Marvel trivia that I know nothing about and you know lots more about, which only proves that I was not clear on the concept of the explainer in the first place. But that is exactly how I'm going to depend on you in this conversation because while I've seen, I think, most of the movies in this series, I'm not sure I've seen them all and I was somewhat in the dark about some of the deep Asgardian lore being thrown around in Thor 4. Funny thing about this movie is it starts with kind of a recap of what's gone on in the previous movies, and there are actually several points in the movies, including some flashbacks and a sort of, like, afternoon playlet by the new Asgard players, which are designed to remind people of what happened in the previous movie. So it kind of comes in assuming that you're not going to remember everything that has happened in Thor 1, Thor 2, Thor 3, and all the other MCU movies. But it does help to at least spend some time on Wikipedia. I will say that much. Yeah, this movie does do some work to catch you up and you could go into it completely cold and still get something out of the story. But yeah, as like most of these movies, it is constantly expanding on this growing mythology that's that's what now 29 movies in or something like that so i am not going to stress about whether i get every single detail right but i may have a few questions for you along the way about what's going on in asgard land part of why i was drawn to this movie uh in spite of the fact that i i skip every other marvel movie now unless there's some particular thing that calls to me in it is because it was directed by taika waititi the new zealand what do you want to call him sort of phenom who rose up through the indie world to become, I mean, now sort of a ubiquitous presence on the Disney, Pixar, Marvel scene. This is his second, I believe his second Marvel freestanding movie that he's directed, right? But he has been kind of ubiquitous in the universe as a voice character, as he is in this movie, as the Rockman Korg, and uh, and in various other guises as well. Do you have anything to say about Taika before we start in on the movie itself? Yeah, I have been a big Taika Waititi fan for a long time, even going back to his uh, earliest movies like uh, Boy and Eagle vs. Shark and uh, his uh, movie What We Do in the Shadows and the TV show adapted from that, which is, if you haven't seen it, is a very funny uh, sort of mockumentary about vampires in the contemporary world. Um, but there was a moment in Lightyear, which is the movie we spoiled last time, Dana, um, where 
these sort of random characters come into the plot about halfway through and one of the voices was sort of naggingly familiar and I couldn't quite place it and I realized it was Taika Waititi and I actually just sort of admit and had this like oh no not again reaction to it because he just sort of seems to be a little bit overexposed right now and someone who was I was used to be really happy and I thought brought some to see and really brought something new and different to the Marvel Universe I now feel like is spreading himself a bit thin which may play into my feelings about this movie as we discuss them. Yeah, because he's been everywhere, right? He's also been in The Mandalorian, I think, directed an episode of that, done voices here and there. I mean, I feel like that's maybe a bit unfair to him because I think he is suffering from a moment of overexposure. But if you don't follow his career that closely or follow every single new Marvel Disney show that closely as I don't, I mean, I was still excited to to see if he brought something to this the way that he did to his his first outing with Marvel, Thor Ragnarok, which I think everybody sort of agreed was... You know, it was turning over a new leaf. It had a new feeling in within this universe and a new look, you know, and a sort of a more comic touch, which this movie does as well. But all of a sudden, I feel like people are turning on Taika. So just to lay our cards on the table at the beginning of this conversation, I think I liked this movie more than you did. Not that I'm like a huge cheerleader who would send everyone to the theater to see it, but I, I found it kind of a refreshing and compact. <laughs> it was very relaxing that it was only two hours long. Just a chapter in this ongoing saga that didn't take itself too seriously. And then I thought it was really well done. Right. I mean, I definitely liked parts of it. You know, I like the parts of this movie that break away from the Marvel template and do seem like people are just kind of goofing around and having fun. But at a certain point, you know, the parts when it has to go back to the plot of the movie just feel like so kind of rote and mechanical at a certain point that you really feel like Taika is just throwing in all this other stuff to just to keep himself sort of engaged because the rest of it means so little to him. And at that point, it sort of becomes, why should I care about any of this if you don't? I think maybe you're right on the storytelling level that this movie doesn't completely get it done. I think it has a really good villain, which is Christian Bale's wonderfully named Gore the God Butcher, certainly one of the best names of a Marvel villain <laughs> in some time. And as we learn in this really pretty dark pre-credit sequence for what's otherwise often a, a comical movie, Gore the God Butcher becomes who he is. His origin story is all about that he's an alien living on this planet that seems to have been essentially forsaken by its gods, right? That in a strangely allegorical way that reminds me of, you know, a climate change kind of story. The planet seems to have turned into a desert and there's no place to get food anymore. We don't learn that much about the background of it, but we just witness this awful scene where this character, you know, while still a a non-super mortal, has his young daughter die in his arms of essentially exposure and starvation because her planet has been forsaken by its god. He then goes to have a meeting with that god and he makes the mistake of telling the Christian Bale character that this sword that just seems to be lying next to them as they're having this conversation in in his godlike grove is the necro sword this kind of metaphysical weapon that is capable of destroying gods i don't know why he happens to mention that because then of course christian bale manages to avail himself of the necro sword kill this god and now swear i'm going through the universe and destroying all gods because they have forsaken me and my daughter yeah there's sort of an old simpsons joke where um, there's like a comic book convention and fans are asking all these questions about like, how did this happen in this episode? Why did this happen? And then eventually someone on the panel just gives up and says, well, you know, anytime something like that happened, a wizard did it. And the equivalent in this movie is the Necrosword did it because it's like, how does Christian Bale end up in the place where the gods are living? How does he kill the gods? How does he know that he then has, there's this one method where he can go to the center of the universe and make this one wish for this all powerful being and wipe out all the gods. And how does he know about all that? 
the Necrosaur did it. The Necrosaur is apparently, this is not even in the movie, but if you read up on it, as I was forced to for professional reasons, sort of akin to like Venom, the symbiote from the Spider-Man movies. So it's a living black gooey creature that apparently just likes to take the form of a sword for most of its existence. And it's also it's sort of this bottomless corrupting evil that saps the life out of the person who's using it. Um, but because Gore uh, really is pretty mad at gods and the whole concept of gods, he's willing to put up with that if he can use the sword to slay them. I mean, if you compare that villain story and just the performance of Bale as that character to The Eternals, right? The movie that came out last year and had some of the most boring and sort of inconsequential and uncharacterized Marvel villains I've ever seen. Just basically these big, large, planet-sized meanies with no apparent motive other than to create destruction on Earth. Gore the God Butcher is great. Maybe it's also that he comes along in a historic moment when religious fundamentalism is taking over the globe and like the fantasy of slaughtering gods is not unidentifiable to many viewers, I believe. Right, and there's a lot of sort of low-grade, low-stakes humor in this that often just has to do with kind of mocking self-awareness and Christian Bale is not having anything to do with any of that like this is a straight up the middle like Shakespearean grandeur like old school British actor superhero movie villain he's just playing it to the hilt and I think you know kind of whatever gravitas the movie has whether or not it needs it comes from him Yeah, agree. And even though you would think that that would mesh really badly, I liked when he came on the scene. It's like, it's Christian Bale. He's bringing it. That's our pre-credit sequence that establishes our villain, Gore the God Butcher. Obviously, one of the gods that he is going to go about butchering is Thor himself. And you want to talk about where we find Thor at the beginning of this chapter? Thor is, if you remember when last we left him, he had kind of hooked up with the Guardians of the Galaxy to just kind of fly around space and do adventures and that is where he is when we find him he is actually initially sort of meditating in a cave off by himself because the point this movie needs to make right at the beginning is that thor is not like really a great team player um even with a band of misfits like the guardians of the galaxy they call upon him to help stop this temple of these sort of otherworldly gods from being torn down and they're trying to plan this whole team assault on it and Thor keeps just running ahead of them and doing whatever he feels like doing with the hammer and then he you know eventually wins the battle by himself and is sort of sitting there all proud and about you know what a great job we did um knowing that he did it as uh, the sort of classic like delayed comedy bit where you see like the big ornate glassine towers of this sacred temple behind him. And you just know after it has held on the shot for more than three seconds that they are quickly going to like shatter into a billion pieces, which of course they do. And then he and the guardians uh, decide to go their separate ways. I have but one note to that excellent summary of the beginning of the movie, which is that here's me being a Marvel nerd, is that he wasn't with his hammer because his hammer, importantly, later in the plot of this movie, was shattered by the Kate Blanchett character, what's her name? By the goddess of death from Asgard, Hela, back in Thor Ragnarok. So he is now fighting with a new weapon. It's called Stormbreaker, and it's a kind of an axe, right? More than a hammer. It's this sort of super axe, which he has this, I thought, humorously ambivalent relationship to. He misses his old hammer. He doesn't feel quite the same about Stormbreaker, and Stormbreaker just wants to be loved. And so there's some sort of axe personification jokes, which maybe get hammered, hardy-har, a little hard into the ground. A couple of them are, are quite funny. Right. I mean, the one thing I like about what Taika Waititi has done with his two Thor movies is... Chris Hemsworth is very funny. He is also, you know, very jacked and large and blonde. Um, and movies generally prefer to make 
more use of the latter qualities than the former. But a lot of my favorite of his performances, like in the Ghostbusters movie, in uh, the Vacation reboot, he's a really, really good comedian. And I think to the extent that he is also sort of playing an enormously jacked superhero in those movies, the, the way that they are playing into how funny he can be is really wise and a good thing to see. He plays on the humor of that character that is at once somewhat self-deprecating and extremely vain, right? I mean, the part of him that sort of claims to be a team player, but really wants to get everything done himself. That takes the movie a long way. Not all the way, but a long way toward, toward being watchable, in my view. Sam, I'm going to put a pin in our conversation for just a second for a word from our sponsor this week. So yeah, in this early and somewhat awkward chapter of the movie that attempts to graft the Guardians of the Galaxy characters onto Thor's story, they disappear pretty early on and take off for their own adventures. But, you know, there's a little bit of embarrassing synergy at the beginning where we we see those characters in a world where they don't completely seem to belong. Then they take off. In the meantime, we've been intercutting with something back on Earth that relates back to the very first two Thor movies. I think those are the only two she was in, which is Dr. Jane Foster, the character played by Natalie Portman. Do you want to talk about where she's at at the beginning of Love and Thunder? She is getting chemotherapy for stage four cancer, which they have reintroduced her into the MCU with. You know, Natalie Portman exited her Thor romance after that second Thor movie. Um, seemed to have no interest in or desire to come back. The thing they offered her in this movie was a chance to play Thor herself. So yes, yeah, so Jane Foster um, has been off doing her own thing. She's written sort of a best-selling Stephen Hawking type book, but now she has this advanced cancer um, and is, you know, although she looks quite well, um, is probably going to die pretty soon. And this is when the uh, shattered pieces of Thor's uh, X-Hammer, I guess we'll call it Mjolnir, um, which have just been sitting around in the earthly city of New Asgard, where the Asgardians have settled um, as sort of like a tourist exhibit. These pieces like begin calling to her somehow. She follows them. This bit all sort of happens off screen, but she you know, follows them there. They reform into the hammer. And when she picks up Mjolnir, she becomes Thor. The Mighty Thor twist in this is something you just don't want to ask too many questions about. Like, how can she exist at the same time as the actual Thor? And sort of what is the metaphysics that makes them be masculine and feminine versions of the same hero at the same time? And why was he not aware that that was a possibility? <laughs> Being somebody who's supposedly versed in the lore of Asgard, did he know that he had a female avatar that could appear at the same time as him? It's all very odd. And even more disturbingly, and we'll get to this later on, we don't know what that means for her illness. She seems to say early on to her friend, played by Kat Dennings back in, you know, Mortal World, that she's seeking out the Asgardians because she wants to see if they have medical advances that could help with her cancer. And at one point, we think that somehow becoming this mighty, hot, long blonde hair superhero is going to cure her cancer. But as it turns out, the hammer is actually draining her energy the whole time. Yes. So she is fine when she is mighty Thor. But when she lets go of the hammer, she is actually Jane Foster worse off than she was before. I mean, when I think about it too much, as one probably shouldn't with this kind of movie, the tonal melange really makes no sense because you're, you're right that you have a really classic, you know, um, brooding kind of superhero villain with the Christian Bale character. Then there's a lot of lighthearted goofiness in practically every battle scene and scene related to Chris Hemsworth. But meanwhile, there is a young woman dying of stage four cancer of some kind which is a driving part of the plot that we really forget about for long periods of time because, you know, we see her fighting crime. How sick can she be? And it's quite depressing to dwell on, so they just uh, don't. 
So getting into the meat of the action of, of Love and Thunder, the first big action scene that we get outside of that sort of setup at the beginning that, you know, that Thor has been fighting with the, the Guardians folks is that the same day that Natalie Portman's character Jane arrives in New Asgard and becomes Mighty Thor, the ham- hammer assembles itself for her, etc. It's a very packed day in the colony of New Asgard because that same day Christian Bale, Gore the God Butcher, arrives with his weird sort of shadow spiders. Do <laughs> you want to describe what his uh, his arrival looks like? Yeah, he just shows up because the Necrosword did it. Once again. But yes, he has this master plan where we find out that he needs Thor's hammer axe, Stormbreaker, whatever you want to call it, to the the literal center of the universe, as they make sure to refer in the movie, uh, lest anybody think they're speaking figuratively. There's there's this being called Eternity. We'll grant one wish to the first person who actually makes it to him. Um, And Gore needs Thor's new hammer to get there because it has the power of uh, Bifrost, the rainbow bridge. Right. And so that leads to this subplot that's going to last for the rest of the movie where all the children of New Asgard, which is not that many, it appears to be about the size of an elementary school classroom, 20 or so kids, are imprisoned in this kind of free-floating cage, right, on a on a distant planet. And they're just sitting there. And Thor can somehow psychically visit them whenever he wants to. He can sort of astrally project himself into the kid cage and go give them a quick, quick pep talk. But he can't actually save them because that's not really him. It's just a projection of him. I hate that I even know this, but I'm just going to explain because you bring that up. The reason he can do that is because one of the Asgardian kids is the son of Heimdall. Idris Elba's used to be the kind of the guy in charge of the Rainbow Bridge. And so he has those magic eye powers and Thor can connect with him through those. That's how he can project himself there. Ah, got it. Got it. Right. That And that's sort of the, the main kid in, in the cage. Sam, I'm going to stop you again for a word from our other sponsor this week. So we soon get this core group of adventurers that are trying to go and find Gore the God Butcher and do away with him, which is which consists of Thor, the mighty Thor, his his new female counterpart, uh, the, the aforementioned Korg voiced by the director Taika Waititi, who is a man made of giant rocks from a planet of rock people. And then, and it's great to see her again, Tessa Thompson's Valkyrie, who was really one of the breakthrough characters in Thor Ragnarok, and it was a huge crowd pleaser, who I find to be really underused in this movie. I was really glad to see her again, could not wait to see her, you know, get to work. And until the end, she gets very few action scenes and seems like she's really relegated to this passive position of kind of sitting and babysitting the ship while everybody goes exploring. Right, they give her an injury, which sort of is an excuse for that. And at the beginning of the movie, she's she's the king of New Asgard, um, which seems to be mostly just sort of a bureaucratic drag for her, more like being the sort of mayor of a mid-sized Midwestern town or something. But yeah, she's not doing her sort of kick-ass uh, sword maiden stuff in this movie. She is um, mostly just kind of kicking around in the background. I will say that that uh, montage that establishes what her life is like as king of New Asgard is quite funny and it seems to imply that she, it, although it may be a bureaucratic position, that she excels at it. I really loved that she just sort of seemed to be everywhere at once and that you see her just kissing babies and cutting ribbons and just utterly overperforming as the, the king of New Asgard. Right. And if you've been watching the MCU movies at all, you kind of understand this. Marvel kind of conceives of gods as sort of very powerful beings, but not like the all-powerful creators of the universe. That's more like the Celestials who were in the Eternals movie. The gods are just more sort of like superheroes who are more powerful than most other superheroes, but they don't have sort of universe-spanning powers. There's a big battle at Omnipotent City, right? 
Zeus is injured, but not killed, as we learn later on. And do they take anyone with them when they take off from Omnipotent City? Like, what does that accomplish? They get Zeus's Thunderbolt, basically. Oh, that's right, which they use as a weapon for the rest of the movie. Yes. Yeah. But it is basically like just a an opportunity for a comic set piece in the middle. And I guess there has to be a scene in every other Marvel movie being like in the Ant-Man movie or whatever, where he's like, oh, I tried to call the Avengers, but they're really busy because otherwise there's always a question of like, uh, somebody's trying to destroy the world. Why don't you just call the Avengers every time? So this time I think they have to explain like, why don't you call all the other gods? And it's like, because they don't really feel like coming. So it's just the four of us. So the last third of this movie is kind of a muddle of action. I think we want to get to the last big action scene. But on the way, it is important to know one thing, which is that Gore the God Butcher, who has been wanting all of this time to get control of Thor's hammer, manages to wrest it from them on this little planet, which was most remarkable to me because it looked like the the illustrations for St. Exupery's The Little Prince, right? They land on a planet that's so small that you can actually see the curvature of it as they're walking around this kind of barren moon. And in a battle on that planet, Gore manages to wrest the hammer away from them, meaning that he, you know, has now essentially pulled the balance of power in the universe over to his side. Yes, and he now has like the one thing that he needs to get him to the place where he can make his wish and exterminate all the gods in the universe. That sets up a big battle, basically, where all the Asgardian kids are there, too. And they all they have to stop, you know, Gore from opening the doorway to eternity. Thor uses his hammer to sort of like spread his power to all the Asgardian kids um, and make an army of little Thors on some of one of whom gets has like a little stuffed bunny whose eyes start shooting like deadly laser beams out of it. I feel like that would have been more successful. The weaponizing of the toys and all of that, which is obviously fan service for kids in some ways, right? I mean, a lot of the viewers are going to be family viewers and it is kind of great for kids to see kids get to take on all of these bad guys. But if we knew who the kids were and had a little bit more of a sense of their characters, I mean, even the main kid who you mentioned is the, you know, the son of the Idris Elba character, Heimdall, is not really established as a person, you know? And so all of that scene to me fell a little bit flat. I will say that one of my favorite jokes in the whole movie happened earlier on when the, the kids are up in their airborne cage that we keep revisiting them in. And Thor goes there to give them a very wan pep talk that doesn't really cheer them up very much. And his final advice to them is, you got to work as a team. Your team, kids in a cage. <laughs> and something about the cruelty of team kids in a cage and then him disappearing just really made me laugh. So this melange of, of tones that we were talking about really gets crazy toward the end because everything is happening at once, right? We're going to finally get Gore the God Butcher trying to get his wish. And we'll talk for in a second about exactly how he's trying to fulfill that wish. But we also get the um, the closure of the story about Jane, Natalie Portman's character, dying of cancer. And here there's a real bit of confusion beyond just the tonal muddle of is this a comedy or a tragedy or, you know, some kind of Shakespearean drama or what. There's just the the plot question of like, why is she dying exactly? Wasn't the whole idea supposed to be that the hammer had restored her to health again or was putting her on some kind of better path? But no, suddenly we see her back again getting chemo and she's all, you know, drawn face, haggard looking. It's clear that she is actually not going to make it and that there's some kind of negative force that the, the hammer is imposing on her mortal self. Yeah, I mean, I guess the idea is that um, the reason that humans don't wield Mjolnir more often is because it has this tendency to consume them just like the Necrosword is doing to Gore. So she is totally fine while she is all thawed out. But the moment she drops the hammer, we see that 
you know, her human body has been kind of wasting more and more away. So Thor tells her in no uncertain terms that she is not to be Thor anymore, that he is going to go and wage his final battle by himself. Naturally, his friends don't listen. So Valkyrie and Jane come with him. Uh, Jane ends up shattering Mjolnir once again and destroying the Necrosword. And that um, basically leaves her dying um, as they finally approach eternity. Yeah, so it's that sacrificial logic that we've already seen in a lot of the Avengers movies, et cetera, right? That somebody sacrifices themselves for the greater good, which seems like it's something of a moral sticking point in the Marvel Universe, right? Like, is sacrifice a good thing or a bad thing? It seems like there's various superheroes always arguing against it, saying, no, every life is valuable and we can't exchange one life for more lives. But at the same time, there's no greater heroism in the Marvel Universe than to sacrifice yourself. What about Christian Bale's final moment? I don't know that I love that as much as I liked the um, the pre-credit sequence of seeing how he became the God Butcher in the first place, in part because this wishing well kind of creature that is imagined by the movie just seems like a little bit of a, of a narrative um, lazy way out or something. I mean, essentially, every single Marvel movie seems to posit some new ultimate force at the center of the universe can you describe this moment so basically eternity is if you if you know the comics will be no surprise a character created by steve ditko who's sort of the marvel comics like big sort of space nut i guess in this version eternity is just kind of a character who sits in the middle of the universe waiting for a person to get there and then the first being to get there will be granted one wish you feel like this might have come up in previous movies like when they were trying to kill thanos and retore half the um, restore half the population of the universe. You feel like somebody went like, you know, there's this eternity thing. Like if we get there and just make the one wish. Um, but it just, nobody thought of it until now. Uh, but yeah, so they defeat Gore. They shatter the Necrosword and Mjolnir, but it is too late. The door has been opened so that Gore and Thor and Jane all make it through to eternity. Thor and Jane are too far away to stop Gore from getting to eternity. So he's getting ready to make his one wish, which all along has been to wipe out all the gods in the universe and Thor talks him out of it. Thor says, hey, you remember how you were really upset about your daughter dying? Um, and like killing all the gods isn't going to bring her back. What if instead you brought her back? And Gore says, you know what? Ah, good point. Um, so yeah, so Gore decides instead of killing all the gods to bring back his daughter, even though he himself is dying because he's been sort of used up by the Necrosword. So he brings back his daughter just in time um, for her to see him die, uh, Jane dies as well because she has been consumed by Mjolnir. So that leaves Thor and Gore's daughter to go back to New Asgard. And Thor essentially kind of takes her in as his own adopted daughter. Right. So we say goodbye to Thor, seeing him be this single dad with a super daughter who he seems to be training in the ways of superheroism. And so the movie goes out on, as I remember, uh, Sweet Child of Mine, the Guns N' Roses song. We didn't even mention that Guns N' Roses have kind of been the animating spirit of this whole movie, right? One of the characters, the kid who is uh, who's Idris Elba's character's son, has an Axl Rose poster on his wall, I think, and identifies with him. And, and throughout, it sort of seems like a lot of the power moves are accompanied by riffs from Guns N' Roses. Yes, this kid, I believe, actually insists that he be called Axel, which Thor refuses to do. Um, but classic teenager, my name's Axel now, uh, move on his part. And it is something that, that I think Waititi has a nice touch with, is the um, the use of pop music in throughout this movie. I did walk out feeling like, oh, I would listen to this soundtrack again, for sure. Uh, yes, yeah. so basically the sort of status quo ante is restored, except that uh, Jane is dead. Um, 
Mjolnir is shattered again. Um, but everybody's back in New Asgard, just kind of, kind of waiting for the next thing until post credit scenes, duh, 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 which we always have to talk about. Oh, that's right. What what happens in the Stingers? What there's the Hercules appears, right? What's the story with that? <laughs> this is this is the part where I have to admit that I had an early train and did not see them, so I only know what happens, but I don't know how. So. Well, all I know is that. There's a moment where we visit Russell Crowe as Zeus again. He is not, in fact, dead, as it was implied that he might have been after the, the sequence in Omnipotent City. And uh, and we see him kind of wishing vengeance upon someone and talking to somebody off screen saying, you know, we've got to fight back and only you can do it, my son. And then we cut to Hercules. But I couldn't tell you uh, who is playing Hercules. Hercules is being played by Brett Goldstein, who is probably uh, familiar to our listeners, if at all as Roy fucking Kent from Ted Lasso. So this is great. Uh, Hercules is canonically Jewish now, among other things. I love that Brett Goldstein, who's a you know full-on comedian, is like playing this role. I love that for once, like an actor got a role as a hero in the Marvel Cinematic Universe and didn't like go on the Kumail Nanjiani diet. Like Brett Goldstein is, you know, in like perfectly fine shape, but he is not like super jacked. Uh, it's not like he's been eating nothing but unseasoned cod for three years. Because, um, you know, he's a, he's a Greek god and the Greek gods, uh, they're, they're just strong and they kind of live it up. So I, I really like him entering into this universe. I have no idea what the future plans for that character are, the, the end credits promise slash threaten uh, that Thor will return. I don't know if that means they're going to do a fifth movie or he's just going to be in other ones. But um, we will probably be seeing more of Brett Goldstein's Hercules at some point. Sam, I wash my hands at this point of of the stingers at the end because I really don't even remember what the other one was. Who else do we see as whom and what does that portend for future Marvel chapters? Well, Natalie Portman, who seemed like she was just trying to stay out of this thing for so long and finally got them to write her a definitive ending where she becomes a god and then dies, um, then turns up again in a post credit scene entering Valhalla, being welcomed by Heimdall, and there's Idris Elba's character. And there's a whole sort of explanation earlier in the movie about how uh, warriors can enter enter Valhalla if they fall on the field of battle. Um, Technically, it seems to me like she died sort of next to the field of battle and not actually on it, but I guess good enough for Heimdall. So it's sort of definitively dead because you literally see her going into heaven, but it also sort of does show her alive again. And you know that if they ever want to get her out of Valhalla, they will find a way to do it in future movies. So I don't know if this is Natalie Portman just trying to be really well and truly dead or Marvel leaving their options open or what. Yeah, for both her and Idris Elba to return if they want. Well, if they do return, you are duty bound to come and talk about the next Thor movie with me. I will stand up for this one on the grounds that if it is true that this feels spun out, I think it has more to do with Marvel milking the character for too long than with anything that Taika Waititi did behind the scenes. I think he brought as much life as he could to what is unquestionably a less vital chapter than his last one, Thor Ragnarok. All right. Well, Sam Adams, thanks so much for joining me again. And I hope to talk to you again soon. Our producer today was Christy Taiwo Macanjula. The vice president of audio at Slate is Alicia Montgomery. For all of you out there, thanks so much for joining us for this spoiler special. And we'll talk to you again soon.